Hello and welcome to Season 4 of the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the current season. In this, our fourth season of Fixing Healthcare, we focus on big ideas and the people behind them. This episode was recorded before the current coronavirus pandemic, and it was delayed in airing due to listener interest in COVID-19. However, as we transition into this, the second phase of the pandemic and begin to look at the future, We want to play it to remind listeners of the powerful role technology will need to play going forward. Listeners who want to know more about the current coronavirus pandemic can access every Monday night our podcast, Coronavirus, The Truth. It's available through Apple and Spotify. Last week on the show, we provided the most recent information on the various coronavirus treatments that are now available and the varying results of governmental interventions across the globe. This week, we answer the questions most concerning to people about easing social distancing. You also can find additional information on the coronavirus pandemic on the website robertpearlmd.com. Our guest today is John Scully. After serving as president of Pepsi, he became the CEO of Apple, He served in that position for a decade, increasing sales from $800 million to $8 billion. He is an expert in marketing and disruptive innovation. He is currently involved in a variety of healthcare technology startups. This is the fourth season of Fixing Healthcare. Its focus will be on big ideas and major success. You have a tremendous history of leadership. Let's start with your first career, the 15 years you spent at Pepsi, Can you tell the listeners why or how you were chosen to be the president of Pepsi and what you were able to accomplish as the youngest president in Pepsi's history? Well, thank you for inviting me on this podcast. Um, Going back a a lot of decades when I started out at Pepsi, I was the first MBA that Pepsi ever hired. So they weren't sure what to do with me. So I was 27 years old and they put me out on a Pepsi route truck in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I worked in bottling plants. That was the era of returnable bottles. I was sent out to Phoenix where I did, uh, I put up signs on buildings in 120 degree heat in the daytime. You get a Pepsi sign on the outside of a building. You had to fix the roofs of these old buildings uh, out in Phoenix. Uh, This is now back in the 1960s. And I was then sent to Las Vegas where I did fountain syrup sales. And then I went on to Milwaukee, which was a union town, so I had to join the union. So I really got my hands dirty learning the kind of basics of the soft drink industry. It's the best thing that ever happened to me because you don't learn these kinds of things on a spreadsheet. And uh, it was through a series of lucky uh, opportunities that I got a chance to 
joined the marketing department of uh, Pepsi when I came back from my training. I was put in market research. They uh, let me work on all kinds of uh, consumer analysis. And um, I did the first quantitative study that uh, Pepsi had ever done on soft drinks, uh, which later led to the development of the two liter plastic bottle, as we discovered when we delivered Pepsi to people's homes every week, along with other uh, soft drinks that they could choose from, that no matter how much we delivered the week before, the household inventory was always empty. So our conclusion was, wow, you know, it's about getting more product into the inventory of the household. And the way to do that might be to create a plastic bottle that's uh, lighter than a glass bottle and make it really big. And we developed the first two liter plastic bottle and got it out there two years ahead of Coca-Cola. So you always have to have a, a, an insatiable curiosity and you have to be willing to work hard. Uh, you have to be constantly observing and learning and realizing that every challenge is an opportunity to learn. And that's sort of how I've approached everything I've done in life. And it's um, something that just keeps reoccurring even today in, at a time where I'm much older and we're into the era of you know, exponential growth of new technologies, but it's still the same kind of approach that I had back in those early days of Pepsi. I became the marketing VP of Pepsi uh, when I was just turning 30 years old. I was 29, actually. And um, that was a pretty good run. We were outsold by Coca-Cola in the U.S. 10 to 1 in 50% of the country. And by the time I left as CEO of Pepsi, uh, we had passed Coca-Cola to become the largest selling consumer package good in America. So you have to set goals that seem outrageous sometimes. It was outrageous to think that Pepsi could ever pass Coke you know, back in those early days. And yet, uh, if you change the ground rules of an industry, uh, anything's possible. It said, John, that you were recruited to Apple by Steve Jobs over the pitch. Do you want to sell sugared water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? Is that a true story? And how did you actually get from being the president of Pepsi to uh, being a senior leader and ultimately the CEO at Apple? Well, the true story, uh, that's a part of it, but to put it into context, uh, Steve Jobs was at that point 27 years old. He had wanted to be the CEO of Apple. The board uh, didn't think he was ready for it. So they gave him as the largest shareholder and the chairman of the board, the veto rights on anyone they interviewed to be the CEO. So they went through over 20 you know, more logical candidates than me out of the industry and Steve turned every one of them down. And then David Rockefeller, who was one of the earliest investors in Apple said, why don't we try another part of the country in a different industry and see if we can find somebody that Steve will find acceptable. What Steve Jobs really wanted, he didn't want another uh, high tech guy. He believed that the future of computing because of the Moore's law, that the power of computers would double every 18 to 24 months. He believed that the future of computing was not just cheaper, faster computers for engineers and professional people. He believed the future was to be able to make a product that would be a consumer device that would be so easy to use and it would enable non-technical people to do amazing things that it would completely change the world. And that was considered a completely ridiculous idea by uh, people in Silicon Valley back in 1982. So Steve wanted to learn, particularly about uh, industrial design and consumer marketing. And so his appeal 
to get me to come to Apple had nothing to do with anything I knew about computers. I really didn't know uh, much about computers. He was interested in that. I had studied to be an industrial designer and studied architecture, uh, that I was deep into uh, design of, of everything, and that I was a consumer marketer. And he said, you've got to come to Apple and, and teach me about design and consumer marketing. And so that's how I was recruited by Steve to come to Apple. The board of directors was less interested in that. The board of directors was concerned because uh, Apple had introduced the Apple III after the Apple II, and it was a failure. They'd introduced Lisa, which was the first graphics-based computer, uh, but much more expensive than the Mac, and that failed. And they were running out of cash because the Apple II was getting near end of life. So when I came to Apple as CEO, uh, I actually uh, moved over to run the Apple II division as the operating head, in addition to being CEO of the corporation. And my job was to help rejuvenate the Apple II, help turn it around. We repackaged it to make it feel you know, more contemporary. And Steve was developing the Macintosh, and it was still gonna be three years before the Mac would be on the market and make money. So we had to get uh, the Apple II turned around and flowing cash uh, if we were gonna survive as a company. And, and that's how I started out at Apple. I've heard that the original price tag for the Macintosh was aimed to be $1,800, and you said, no, let's charge $2,300. It's both worth it, and we need the cash to invest and build the company. Is that story true? Well, it's, it's almost true. <laughs> uh, uh, it, the, the original price that Steve had wanted and his team had wanted was $1,995, $1,995. But we needed money to advertise the product um, because there, at, at that time, IBM was selling personal computers. Atari outsold Apple. We had Commodore that outsold Apple. IBM was outselling uh, Apple. And so we had to have marketing dollars. So Steve said, yeah, we should have marketing dollars. And so well, if we do that, you know, we're not making any money anywhere else. We've got to uh, raise the price from what you wanted originally of 1995 to 2495. And when we introduced the uh, Macintosh office. This was the year after the first Mac. And we added the laser printer to it called the laser writer. And the reality was that the microprocessors were just not very powerful uh, back in 1983, 1984, 1985. And so it took forever to just be able to paint uh, any kind of graphics on a screen of a Macintosh. And it would take uh, minutes to be able to print even a single page with a laser printer. So when Steve introduced the Macintosh office in 1985, uh, it was supposed to revolutionize you know, the way we publish documents, you know, desktop publishing, uh, which Apple really helped in invent with Adobe. But the reality was people didn't take it very seriously. They said, this is just not realistic that people will sit around and wait that long to print a, a document or to uh, paint a screen. So the Macintosh office was a failure, and Steve blamed me, and he said, well, it's your fault. You made me price it at $24.95, and I said, Steve, I don't think the price had much to do with it. The, the reality is that it just didn't deliver the things you wanted it to, and we're probably a year or two too early. Uh, Morris Law doubles, remember, the, the performance of a processor every 18 months to two years. So that became an area of dispute between uh, Steve and me. We went to the board. We discussed it with the board. And the result of that was the board asked 
uh, Steve to step down from running the Macintosh division. We put someone else in charge of it. Steve did not get fired. That was, that's a myth. But Steve went off on a sabbatical for several months, and then he came back, and, and uh, he decided to resign from the company. He started a new company called Next. So as CEO, you increased Apple's revenue from something like $800 million to $8 billion. How'd you do it? Well, we had the advantage of um, Steve Jobs had created a, a brilliant product with the Macintosh, even though when he was there, it was too early in the, in the capability of a microprocessor, to, as I was saying a moment ago, to be able to, to do things fast enough. But Moore's Law, in a couple of years later, enabled uh, the Macintosh to get better and better. The screens got bigger. We were able to add color. We came out with the first really successful notebook computer. And by uh, 1992, uh, Apple was the largest selling personal computer in the world. So we did it just by having terrific products and having a great vision. That all came from Steve Jobs. And um, the focus in my era was, you know, how do we you know, add these other capabilities to it and how do we deploy it and, and, and market it? So that was what we did. But, but I never was the creator of, of computers per se, the way Steve was. I, I did work on handheld technology and handheld products that eventually became the, the foundational technologies for uh, iPads and iPhones and things like that much later. But no question that Steve Jobs laid the foundations for Apple's culture, Apple's vision, and so many of the things that went on to make Apple the great corporation it is today. As you look at the current Apple, how is it different from what you and Steve built? Well, I think, you know, because I, I was there in the early days, uh, when I showed up at Apple, the entire Macintosh division that reported to Steve, the average age was 22. And Steve was, you know, like 26 going on 27. And the headquarters uh, of the executive team was in a converted house. So it was a very different Apple physically. But at the same time, um, Steve was such a, a visionary that he saw that Apple was going to need a culture that would attract the talent that cared about doing things that had never been done before to really make a difference. And he laid down the foundational first principles of Apple that are highly recognizable today. I'll give you an example. Make design the center of everything we do. Focus on uh, pleasing customers through an amazing user experience. No compromises. All of these uh, foundational ideas came really from Steve Jobs. You know, these were things that he had already put into place by the time I got to Apple. But together, you know, we continue to scale those out to be the, really the foundations for what's recognizable in Apple today. You know, when I look back at the past decade, and now I want to shift really into healthcare technology per se, I can't identify any product application that has come along in the past decade that has lowered costs in healthcare, unlike almost every other industry where the same technology has not only raised quality, improved cons uh, consumer satisfaction, but driven down the price. What's your perspective on healthcare technology per se and the role that it will play going forward into the future? The healthcare industry is about $3.6 trillion in the US. Uh, so it's, it's a really big industry. It's an industry that 
really doesn't look a lot different today than it, than it did 10 years ago. Uh, that the incumbent companies are pretty much the same, but they're much bigger. Uh, the uh, industry has been focused on sick care. So chronic care patients is the heart of uh, what the healthcare system uh, does well. And just 7% of the population in the United States accounts for 50% of that $3.6 billion sick care spend. So everything that we see today in the healthcare industry is, is really a continuation in some form, uh, though the industry is getting bigger and bigger and spending more money, of what the industry was a decade ago or even longer. Other industries, telecommunications, financial services, entertainment, uh, retail, e-commerce, you know, all of these things have industries that have radically changed their uh, focus and their structure so that I can remember when I was a young MBA, when, when every company was organized around institutions, it was um, you know, focused on uh, how do you build things and evolve things to continue to grow size and profits. Uh, when cloud computing came in, when mobile devices came into the industry, when new kinds of applications and services became possible, that empowered consumers where customers were in control, we saw other industries change radically with huge success. Uh, online banking was a curiosity in the 1990s. Uh, today we take uh, online banking, better known as FinTech, as the foundational vision for the banking system. And you can go through industry after industry and, and see amazing success of the adoption of exponentially growing technologies, except the healthcare industry. And so what is happening now, I believe, is that the big tech companies, and I'm thinking of Apple and Google and Amazon, and Microsoft, and, and a few others, are saying, we want to be in this $3.6 billion industry, or trillion dollar industry, but we want to look at it a different way. And the way that these big companies are all looking at it is saying, uh, we can take cloud computing, we can take uh, wearable devices, handheld devices, service platforms. Uh, we can take those same foundational technologies that have worked so well in other industries, and we can pivot uh, a significant part of the healthcare industry uh, to empowering consumers, just like every other industry has empowered consumers or customers. And the way it's happening now in the healthcare industry is focusing not on sick care, uh, but focusing on preventative care, focusing on wellness, focusing on early detection of serious diseases, uh, focusing on giving people a way to impact on their own, to monitor uh, their, their own improvement in uh, health and wellness using wireless devices. It, it, it may be an Apple Watch. It may be a smartphone. Uh, it may be some application that, that is running that um, you know, monitors your sleep or monitors your heart. We're now starting to see that these technologies are being implemented in very large products, you know, like the iPhone, like the Galaxy Android phone. So I believe that what's going to be significant, let's say between now and 2025, is that we're going to see not just one big winner, uh, take all, as we've seen in social media, say with Facebook, or we've seen with search 
advertising uh, with Google, but we'll see several potentially really big winners of recognizable consumer uh, high-tech companies like Apple and Google and Amazon, Microsoft. Um, so I think that what motivates me when I think about the healthcare industry is yes, five to 7% of the population accounts for about 50% of the health spend. And this is largely the chronically ill people. But there is about 75% of the chronic care diseases that are out there are actually reversible. You know, if you have type one diabetes, that's not reversible. You, you have that for life. But if you have type two diabetes, which is as a market sector is 10 times bigger than type one, that is completely reversible by eating better nutrition, by exercising, by monitoring your habits, by taking proper medication, all of these things. And you can go through um, health area after health area and find ways that preventative care, wellness uh, can be impacted with the use of smart sensors, uh, the use of cloud platform services, all these things starting to empower patients who are really consumers. And I think we're gonna to start to see uh, in the decade of the 2020s that the kind of revolutions that have gone on in other large industries will actually start to happen in healthcare too. What made the culture at, uh, at United Health and, uh, and Pepsi during your time there and Apple during your time there and some of the other organizations you work, what stands out within those cultures and makes them special? Like how can a, uh, your average everyday employee um, who's maybe only worked at one or two or three places uh, really know whether they're like, what are the things to look for if you're hunting down that long-term career or whatever to know that you're in one of these special cultures in an organization that's going to thrive and grow? Well, I can just tell you things that I've personally experienced when, when uh, United Healthcare acquired Rally Health, they didn't try to fold it into their large Optum business. They, they let it run as a separate entity. And it actually reported directly up to Dave Wickman, who at that time was president of the corporation and now is the CEO. And so uh, it had a chance to live and breathe without having to conform to the pretty established rigorous culture that, that exi existed before. And uh, there's a long history of companies like 3M and like uh, United Healthcare that when they at United buy a company, a lot of their growth comes through acquisition or 3M when they invent a new product, they let it have, have space. You know, they, they let it sort of run on its own. So many of the businesses inside of Optum are integrated financially into their financial reporting, but they still run as sort of independent portfolio of companies. And I think that's you know a, a smart thing to do. It, it's it's it really is challenging to take a small company and force it into the culture of the large acquiring company. And often those those small companies end up becoming the growth engines that redefine what the large company will look like a decade later. I love that answer actually. If you were talking to you know the average healthcare consumer on the street, and they said, John Scully, what is the single most or the single piece of technology you are most excited about that'll come about in healthcare within the next five, 10 years? I, I would say that the impact, remember the healthcare industry is an industry that you can't impact unless you do it at scale. 
because um, it's so huge. So the, the thing that I think is most interesting to me is the impact that smart process automation can have on the healthcare industry. And the reason I say that is because um, at one of my companies, RX Advance, uh, we built the first cloud platform PBM, pharmacy benefit management company. And it's all based on smart uh, automation. So that uh, technically it's called robotic process automation. And we use a lot of machine learning and we can do uh, with intelligence uh, using uh, smart systems that are horizontal. Because if you're going to revolutionize an industry like healthcare, uh, an industry that has been organized into silos and the silos have moats around them. So it's, it's difficult to challenge them. It's difficult to integrate them. Um, it's even difficult to move uh, data across from silo to silo. And so the healthcare industry technology has always been organized around empowering the silos, empowering the institutions. So it's always been designed to work in a hierarchical structure where the institutions are at the top of priority and where the functions are in silos. But we know from experience that every industry that has been totally transformed through technology is not built that way. It's built today horizontally. It's got platforms and platforms go horizontally. They go from one end of the, of the system to the other end of the system. The enablement of consumers in these industries take financial services uh, with fintech uh, take um, you know any of the telecommunication services we have today including you know the ability to stream media to which is you know rapidly replacing you know live television over cable uh, these are all horizontal platform models and the role of uh, automation in healthcare because so much of healthcare is about transactions so on the one hand, we can enable consumers with new kinds of tools, with better information, uh, with things that make the experience less painful to, to go through. You don't have to fill out forms all the time. On the, on the other hand, you've got to be able to get real productivity and economies. And the only way you can do that is you've got to take the data horizontally across the entire continuum of care. So when we created Rx Advance, uh, the traditional role of a PBM, pharmacy benefit manager, was one purpose, to adjudicate the reimbursements between the pharmaceutical companies who want to get their prescription drugs listed on what are called formularies. And so it's very, very valuable to the pharmaceutical companies to be on these formulary lists. So that process is managed by the PBMs. It's required by the regulators that every time a script is written by a physician, that the regulations insist that you document the clinical, the claims data, and the related lab data for every prescription. Now think about how much valuable data comes out of that. Every prescription that's written in the United States must legally be documented with clinical claims and related lab data. But because the industry is organized into vertical silos, that data is only used today to adjudicate the reimbursements between the pharmaceutical companies, the payers who are the insurance companies or the providers who are the hospitals and the clinics, and then the delivery uh, uh, pharmacies. 
So if you take that same data, clinical claims and related lab data, across the entire continuum of care, particularly for those very expensive patients, those chronic care patients who have maybe nine different high comorbidity diseases, they're often getting conflicting information. They're often, because they're dealing with different physicians who don't know what the other physicians are prescribing. So they may be getting duplications. They may be getting uh, prescriptions that have side effects in combination with another prescription that another doctor is prescribing. You don't know if the patient is actually taking the medication. If they are taking the medication, are they taking it on time? You know, what are the effects of that? So if you can take that uh, clinical claims and related lab data across the entire continuum of care, all the way out to you know, patients in their home or uh, to the pharmacist in the pharmacy that now becomes a health hub uh, with lots of different services on, on premise, you can radically change with a platform the prescription drug uh, experience, the industry, the economics, and drive cost out of it. There's no reason why prescription drugs are as expensive as they are. And, and that's just one example. Uh, so I think platform automation is going to be foundational to everything that goes on in the healthcare system. And the reason I'm so confident of that is that we can already say that platform automation is foundational to everything in the banking system today. Every bank, you know, not just in the U.S., but in other countries, too. It's foundational into everything in e-commerce and in omnichannel. You know, it's foundational to now everything that's happening in entertainment. So it's just logical that eventually these same foundational uh, process automation platforms are going to find their way into healthcare. And healthcare is a transaction industry, just like financial services or entertainment or e-commerce. So it, it's going to happen. It's not. You know, will it happen? It's when it happens, where will it happen, who will, who will be the leaders in it? But there's no question in my mind it's going to happen, that we're going to be, a, the healthcare industry of the future will be a platform-based industry and it'll be organized around the consumer experience, the patient's experience, and we'll discover all kinds of ways of building valuable new companies, valuable uh, ways in which healthcare can be delivered more effectively at a lower cost. But until you deal with that foundational question of getting the foundational architecture correct in the platforms, you're not going to get the big productivity games. And, and it's one of the reasons why people say uh, maybe healthcare can't be reformed. Maybe it's just too complex. I don't buy that. One of the big differences is the third party intermediary, the fact that insurance pays for the healthcare costs sitting in play. You may have seen this week that the obesity rate in the United States, which is the direct correlation with the diabetes rate, is now at the highest level. Over 30% of people are at tremendous risk now for either having or, or developing diabetes. What's going to motivate them if we're not seeing it yet? What's going to motivate them to use these tools to achieve the outcomes that you're predicting? Well, I'll give you an, an example from another company that I was part of the founding team of, uh, which is called Rallied Health. And we sold that to United Healthcare back in 2014, Rally Health had a really cool idea, came from our founder who started out with, a, with the idea that uh, you could empower consumers to change their behavior if you could get them engaged. And his name was Grant Persandi. And Grant was the founder CEO of, of Rally Health. And the way Rally Health works is that when we sold it to uh, United Healthcare that owns Optum, Optum had about 10 million 
wellness lives and it had about 10 million preventative care lives and it was losing money on both of those groups by moving them over to our platform at Rally Health where we had figured out how to get significant engagement with consumers. And we did that by asking people to look at 40 pictures on a screen. Uh, this was when people were still getting uh, most of their internet uh, experience from large screens, notebook computers, and things like that, as opposed to uh, iPhones and smartphones. And so we'd say, look at these 40 pictures. And they're actually 40 screens with uh, a, a side of the screen and a B side of the screen, two different pictures on each screen. And you'd say, are you more like A or are you more like B? And we'd ask this 40 times, 40 different uh, screenshots. And at the end of that, we were able to build a very detailed profile. No one had to write anything down. They just had to, had to vote on, on looking at 40 different screens that were divided into, into an A picture or a B picture. Are you more like A or are you more like B? And we use that to particularly zero in on women because women were the uh, care deciders for everyone in their own personal ecosystem, you know, their spouse, their children, their grandchildren, their parents, uh, their in-laws. And so the way we got women involved, because we found out that women were actually the largest online gamers. It wasn't teenage boys playing uh, video games. It was actually women doing Candy Crush and Angry Bird and puzzles and things of this sort. And so we got women engaged and we gave them incentives to join different um, groups of, of interest that they had. And we gave them awards and we got, gave them rewards. And the rewards became discounts in co-pays and deductibles for their health insurance because United Healthcare and Optum were part of the same company. And so that business, uh, now that it's owned by United Healthcare, has scaled into a very, very large successful business. I think they spend well over $1.5 billion a year just on marketing expense. And the discounts on co-pays and deductibles is kind of equivalent to what we're used to in other industries like frequent flyer miles. And it's, uh, except in this case, it's put into the context of healthcare. Well, it turns out that if you can get people to show evidence that they're changing their behavior in order to win discounts on co-pays and deductibles, uh, that it actually drops right to the bottom line of a healthcare company, and it's known as the medical loss ratio, the MLR. It's one of the most important metrics that you measure in an insurance company. So uh, Rally Health became very successful, and it's a great example how you can attach engagement with the consumer, get them involved with things they like, get them involved with other people they enjoy to be associated with, focus in on rewards and focus in on awards as opposed to just rewards. And you can build a very successful, entirely different way of uh, approaching the insurance industry than anyone had done pr prior to that. As you know, John, I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and disruption is a major focus. What do you believe will happen with programs like Haven, the healthcare startup that combines Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase? Well, no one really knows exactly where Haven's going to end up. Uh, I know uh, Atul Gawanda, who is heading that program up, because 
uh, we started a healthcare company in, in the Boston area called RX Advance, a pharmacy benefit management cloud platform company. And um, you know, the Haven is, is very familiar with what, what we're doing. And there's some very smart people in Haven. But I think Haven is trying to solve the problem of how can an employer, in this case, Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan, and Amazon, those three employers together, have uh, well over like 1.5 billion employees. How can those employers deliver a better healthcare experience at a, a better economic value to their employees? They have not said that this is something they will necessarily take beyond their employees, but it's very important to them because of the large number of employees between those three companies. And I think it's, it's, it's a terrific initiative because at the very least, it's got everybody thinking, wow, if they figure something out that the rest of us don't know, they could take that out into the market and we could suddenly have a major new competitor. So it's very healthy for the industry to see that kind of um, potential disruptive innovation with smart people backed by three of the most successful companies in the world giving their um, you know, branding behind it. So I'm, I'm excited to see what Haven comes up with, but it's still early days. You're one of the leading thinkers around marketing. As you say, you started the consumer research studies. Uh, you think of the people who use healthcare as consumers. Doctors still think of them as patients. What is your strategy to change the way doctors view the people they take care of? Well, I have huge respect for what doctors do, but I also believe that doctors are as interested as uh, patients are in finding a better experience for patients in the healthcare system. And for example, why is it necessary every time you go to a doctor, they give you a clipboard and you fill out a form that looks exactly like the form you filled out the last time you were there and looks exactly like the form that you fill out with any other doctor that you're, you're seeing. I mean, that's uh, you know, more like 1955, not, not like 2020. So I, I think that uh, every part of the, uh, let's call it the consumer experience is being thought about and challenged and doctors, uh, many of them are turning into entrepreneurs. They're saying, wow, you know, I get to see things through my everyday practice that are helping me understand health from a different perspective. Uh, why can't I be an entrepreneur and go start a business? So I think one of the things that will make the healthcare industry radically different from what it has been up until now, that it will not be defined just by the incumbent institutions, but it's gonna be like every other industry has gone through uh, in the past uh, 20 or 30, 40 years. Uh, it's gonna be completely disrupted with, with new entrants uh, doing you know, new types of products and services that are gonna take advantage of amazing technologies that are growing at an exponential rate of change. Uh, just to give you an example of that, most people in my generation grew up with linear time. You know, we have a pretty good instinctive idea of how long a week is, what you can get done in a month, you know, what gets accomplished in a year. But in exponential time, because we live in an exponential math world, where it's not just Moore's law that's uh, growing at an exponential rate of change, uh, it's so many new technologies, everything from sensors to data science to types of uh, services you know, based on uh, wireless technology that enables us to 
take services that were only available before, you know, over a fixed landline in a, in a home, looking at a big screen, now you can carry everything around in, in a mobile device. People can be tracked and followed and uh, the value uh, of a service uh, is the data that it generates and what that data can enable, both in terms of services for, for the users, but also you know, incredible business models for the company. So it's a, a world that's completely different everywhere except healthcare. Healthcare is still, you know, because it's highly regulated and has powerful special interests. No company, uh, no industry, let's say, spends more money on lobbyists than the U.S. healthcare industry. Pharmaceutical industry spends $240 million a year on lobbyists. That's far more than any other industry. Um, the number two largest industry on lobbying expense is the healthcare industry, about $150 million a year on lobbying expense. So when industries are putting uh, so much money into lobbyists to give the current system you know, a uh, thumb on the scale advantage over a new company coming in, that's not good for disruption. The reason why disruption is gonna win in the end is that when you empower the customer to be able to be the decider, to know what choices are, where you give them transparency to compare services, quality, pricing uh, with other alternatives, then you start to see industries go through disruption. I give about 40 keynote addresses a year, half of which to technology companies and half of which to healthcare organizations. When I go to these two sets of meetings, it's two different realities. The healthcare companies are all telling me about the great products they have, you know, artificial intelligence, data analytics, wearables, and the physician, the medical culture is saying to me, these devices don't seem to make my life any better, don't seem to work for me. For listeners, how can you, or how do you recommend separating the hype from the reality of new technology? You have to hit a certain threshold level for a technology to be able to live up to the, to the vision. And I saw that, uh, you know, up close in the early days of, of Apple, because Steve Jobs had the vision. His vision never changed, but he didn't. He wasn't an engineer. He didn't have the um, experience of translating a vision into a disruptive solution that was going to deliver exactly what he believed the vision should be able to deliver to consumers. You can sometimes just be too early. Um, I was too early when I was working on handheld devices like the Newton and General Magic. We were probably 15 years too early, but we didn't at the time realize that. And same thing was true with Steve on, on the early Macs. He didn't realize that he was probably 15 years too early for some of the visions he had for personal computing. So the reality is in healthcare that there's been a lot of hype of devices that, that really were just too early to make the kind of difference that those uh, same technologies we're making in other industries. And as give you a good example, let's take telehealth. Telehealth has been around about a dozen years in the United States. And I sort of think of it the way people looked at online banking back in the mid 1990s when the World Wide Web uh, first began to be commercialized. And when people started to see it was possible to do online banking tasks or pay bills online, you know, over the web, um, the majority of people said, well, I don't know, it sort of sounds like a cool idea, but why would anybody really want to do that? And could you trust it? 
And that's exactly what uh, telehealth has gone through. Uh, it's taken a long time for telehealth to move beyond what's called low acuity care. Low acuity care would be, gee, I woke up with an earache today. I need a doctor to write me a prescription. What do I do? Um, so you try one of the telehealth services and you may be happy with the experience, but you may only use that once a year. So there's no recurring uh, revenue of any importance. And yet these services are very expensive to acquire customers. Any B2C consumer uh, based service is expensive in, in terms of the customer acquisition. So you've got to have a recurring revenue model to pay for it. Consequently, we're now at the stage with telehealth where we're moving from low acuity care to higher acuity care. Uh, we're, we're moving into uh, remote patient monitoring. We're moving into different types of health services that can be delivered. We're moving into senior care as hospitals close down uh, about 40% of their beds and the aging population is more likely to be treated in their own home with sensors monitoring their entire world in their home and the ability to connect back with health professionals through telehealth. And that's just one example. So uh, everything has its time. And we're at a point now where disruption is starting to have its time in many, many places. And it's one of the reasons why I'm still very active in um, healthcare. Like you, I'm very bullish on video telehealth, if people want to call it that. I think 30% at least what we do in the medical office today is going to be done with telehealth. That'll be more convenient, higher quality, and far less cost. I'm less bullish on some of the monitoring devices, not because they're not brilliant technology, but because what they really need to have is built into an artificial intelligence to tell the user whether he or she is fine or not. Because the idea of just sending data to someone in a distance doesn't really do much to lower the cost. And as an example, most doctors don't want to get 100 cardiac EKGs. Uh, what do you see as being the way that these companies, to me, are going to overcome what I think is a medical legal or a legal restriction, that they're just afraid to give out the advice that people need? Because I think that would really be the game changer. I just don't see it happening. Do you see Apple doing it soon? Well, I can't speak for Apple because I'm not uh, inside of Apple, but I can tell you things that, that I am involved with, you know, working on in, uh, in, in private companies. So for example, we have a company called Zedson, uh, Z-E-D-S-E-N over in London, that has developed the first completely accurate, consistently accurate way of monitoring blood glucose on a non-invasive basis so that you could build it into a digital watch, you could build it into a smartphone. We've actually built it into a cover of a smartphone so that it could you know, go on, a, say, an Android phone, and it could enable you to put your finger on, on a sensor and without a pinprick, be able to measure your accurate blood glucose as many times during the day as you want to. Well, for a type 2 diabetic, that's an incredible advantage over a finger prick on your blood testing. There are uh, already devices for type 1 diabetics uh, to be able to do something that uses a minimally uh, invasive patch, but it's really expensive. It's like $1,300 a year to keep replacing these uh, patches every couple of weeks. So if you were to take, let's take what we're doing with Zetson and put it into a smartphone cover, and you made it that simple uh, to be able to monitor your blood glucose, 
Now tie that back if you had that integrated into a service that is helping those people improve their uh, behavior. They're just their basic lifestyle. Remember, the majority of people who are obese are reversible. You know, they could lose weight, they could exercise, they could follow, you know, better coaching and things of this sort. And there've been a number of successful companies. Lavongo is one that went public last summer, uh, a relatively small company around hundred million revenue, four billion dollar IPO. So I think that we are gonna see disruptive innovation uh, using sensor technology. Most of it's gonna be non-invasive. Some of it will be sensors that you wear. Some of it will be sensors uh, that are able to sense the environment. Imagine if you're a senior citizen living at home by yourself and you have ambient sensors that are able to sense uh, smell, uh, temperature, motion, all of these different things that are keeping track of a lonely person who is in their senior years who may have a series of, of medical issues and keeping them in touch with health professionals. And imagine if you have the next generation of an Alexa or a Siri uh, is not just a, a request and respond technology, but as a conversational technology where you can actually have a conversation you know, with these devices. And the device is incorporated in with sensors that is saying, hey, you didn't take your uh, prescription at 11 o'clock. And, and by the way, you haven't gotten out of bed in the last four hours. Is everything okay? So I think that I'm not making up things that are kind of like science fiction. I'm telling you about stuff where the technology already exists and there are already companies that are starting to put these technologies together and, and deploy them. Not everything will work, not everything will work perfectly, but I'm totally convinced that in the next five years that we will see a shift in the growth of care from point of care in institutions like hospitals and doctor clinics to point of care in the home for particularly senior citizens and point of care at retail uh, for many, many people. You know, we're gonna see you know, Walmart and CVS and Walgreens and, and uh, Best Buy and others are completely reformatting what their retail uh, stores are looking like. And more and more, it's, it's gonna be uh, organized around the consumer and the experience of different types of preventative care uh, services and products. And we're going to see that the role of innovation, I think, will become every bit as important in the health industry by the end of this decade as it has become in telecommunications, financial services, you know, retail, entertainment, things of that sort. If you had one piece of advice for your average everyday healthcare consumer, what would it be? to have higher expectations of what you believe that you as a patient in the system should expect from providers. And it's, we have plenty of very smart, competent people in the healthcare system. It's not like this is uh, an industry that didn't attract talented people. It absolutely did. I mean, I have met over the last 15 years, so many talented people in the healthcare industry, so many highly, uh, principal people who say, you know, I want to see a noble cause of, you know, a better way to deliver healthcare, uh, that more people ought to be covered by insurance. When you hear about things like uh, 
Medicare for all. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a catchy phrase that has no substance behind it that can possibly be implemented because it's being uh, spoken by politicians who basically don't know what they're talking about. Uh, on the other hand, if you say, why shouldn't everybody have health care? Uh, why shouldn't everyone have health insurance? And start there and say, so what would it take in terms of if you're going to build the system from the ground up, you know, how would it look different? Look at our telephone system today. One time there were operators uh, sitting at a central office at a switchboard connecting phone calls. And there was a time when back in the 1930s, people said, well, the telephone will never be a pervasive uh, technology because there aren't enough women around to train to be uh, operators to you know, work at the switchboards. Well, that sounds ridiculous, <laughs> a statement today. You say, how could anyone have possibly said something like that? But there were intelligent people who actually thought that way you know, back in the 1930s and the 1940s. We're going to see a lot of things we do today, which will see, seem completely ridiculous 10 or 20 years from now, uh, that will be replaced by you know, very simple technologies that will be, at the same time, very sophisticated and well-deployed and incredibly inexpensive that we'll just take for granted, just like we take those types of technologies for granted you know, every time we pick up a smartphone and, and uh, use it. John, thank you for joining us. This has been most informative for our listening audience. Robbie, what are your thoughts on what Mr. Scully presented? Jeremy, it's fascinating to listen to this podcast that we recorded before the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic and how much of the material still applies to today's reality. In particular, his focus on video was powerful. As he pointed out, this is a technology that can transform American healthcare, raising quality, making care more convenient, and lowering cost. In the various keynotes I presented since the publication of the book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, I've told audiences that 30% of what we do in our medical offices today could be done as well, if not better, through telehealth. Based on the positive experience of both doctors and patients since the start of COVID-19, I now believe it's closer to 40%. As CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, we place physicians on the campuses of companies like Google and Apple. We used video to bring specialty expertise into the exam room when the employee's problem required it. Over half of the time, the medical problem either was solved that day, immediately in the office, or the workup could be begun more rapidly than if a consult had simply been sent. The potential for video is far greater than either doctors or patients realize. I concur. Living in Iowa and knowing how many people live in rural areas away from the major academic centers, being able to get subspecialty expertise immediately and conveniently is tremendous. It's hard to put the coronavirus into a positive light, but this could be one example. More on this on this week's episode of Coronavirus The Truth. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. 
at Fixing HC Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this show, and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on these topics, you can visit my website, robertprolmd.com. Together, we can make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.